0: And we've been looking at Acts chapter 13 and a message that Luke records for us that was delivered in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Paul, having made that trek up through the Taurus Mountains to the city of Pisidian Antioch, went into the Sabbath, into the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom, and he began to preach Christ. What would it have been like to sit under the apostle Paul and to listen to his message? I think it would have been phenomenal. I think you and I would have been gripped by his conviction, been awed by his passion and stood in awe of his commitment i think the apostle had the ability to gain a crowd and to keep a crowd and to keep them interested i think we would have stood in awe at his understanding of the old testament and his ability to present christ crystal clearly from the old testament scriptures i think paul was a dynamic speaker i don't think he used notes at all i think he went into the synagogue and the city in antioch and he stood up and he delivered his message And we've looked at that message in Acts chapter 13. And he's preaching to Jews and he's preaching to God-fearing proselyte Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. And there are some God-fearing Gentiles there in the synagogue as well. And the Apostle Paul has been making good use of the Old Testament Scriptures and good use of Israel's history. And he has presented Christ to these God-fearers, Jews and Gentiles and proselytes. He's presented Christ to them in terms of their Old Testament Scriptures. And he has shown them, as we saw at the beginning of that message, that in Christ, history is culminated. Everything has, has been driven and directed to the culmination of finding its purpose and its aim in Christ. And then the Apostle shows that in Christ, prophecy was fulfilled. Christ fulfilled prophecy in His death, and Christ fulfilled prophecy in His resurrection. And now we come to the end of Paul's message, which is really his conclusion and his third point, and that is that in Christ, humanity is liberated. In Christ, history is culminated, prophecy is fulfilled, and humanity is liberated. And so the Apostle Paul wraps up his sermon by appealing to these Jews that they now having understood what they need to understand concerning their Messiah, that they will believe in Him and place their faith in Him for salvation. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 38, I want you to notice two things this morning. First of all, the responsibility that the Apostle lays upon his hearers. The responsibility, and then second, their response to this message. Verse 38 begins, therefore, that indicates to me that Paul is drawing together his concluding thoughts. He has told them everything that it is that they need to know to make a decision about Christ. He has gone through the Old Testament. He has shown them that God has prepared and promised and provided a Savior for them. That that Savior was crucified according to the Scriptures. That He was buried according to the Scriptures and that He was raised the third day from the dead, according to the Scriptures. And He has argued from the Old Testament that this One who was promised, who was prophesied, whose death, burial, and resurrection was foreseen through the prophets, this One now has been sent, and God has fulfilled His promise to us by sending us His Son, allowing Him to die, allowing Him to be buried, and then raising Him from the dead the third day. All of that information He has communicated to them, And now the Apostle is bringing home to them their responsibility to do something with this message. And what he wants them to do is to believe. And so he says, Therefore, verse 38, Let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through Him everyone who believes is freed from all things which you could not be freed from through the law of Moses. The Apostle is going to begin to push them toward belief. He wants them to do something with what it is that they've heard. They've heard about the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And now Paul says, therefore let it be known to you. And then he goes into the blessings of belief and the consequences of unbelief. And he wants to lay those before his audience because he understands that they need to know we have a choice to make now. We understand everything there is to understand concerning the person and the work of Christ. And now we must make a choice. We will either choose salvation or we will choose damnation, but we will choose one of the two. That's the choice that all of humanity is faced with. As I said last week, you either, you, everybody will stand before Christ. You'll either stand before Him as your judge or you'll stand before Him as your savior, but you'll stand before Him. You're gonna choose one of those two paths. Christ offers you salvation or He promises you damnation. You choose. Choose which one it is. He's given to you all the information that you need to make an intelligent and informed decision about who Christ is and what Christ has done and what you're going to do to Him. And notice that the presentation of the Gospel, as Paul gives it, is not just the communication of facts. Paul could have just communicated some facts and then sat down. He could have said, your Messiah was crucified, your Messiah was buried, your Messiah was raised again. That's enough. Sit down. But he doesn't do that. And neither should you ever stop short of asking somebody to make a decision to choose which it is that they're going to do with Christ, to either trust Him or to reject Him. And you should lay out, as Paul does, the ramifications of belief and the ramifications of unbelief. Present to them clearly the blessings of belief and the consequences of unbelief. Because our presentation of the Gospel and our sharing of Christ and our preaching of His Word, whether it is in Sunday school or with your Awana group on Friday night or with your coworker or your neighbor is not just about the communication of facts. You want to communicate the truth of who Christ is and what Christ did, but you also want to call upon them to make a choice. And as dead as they are in their trespasses and sins, you want to appeal to the will of that individual To believe on Christ. Because that's the choice they have to make. And you present it in those terms. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We beg of you, be reconciled to God through His Son. He pleaded with men and women. He reasoned with men and women. And in presenting the Gospel, the Apostle Paul did just that. We beg you to be reconciled to God. Paul said in Romans chapter 11, chapter 9, verse 3, I wish myself accursed from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's how badly he wanted people saved. I would wish myself accursed if my brethren would trust Christ. Remember what Paul said to Agrippa when he met him and he laid out his defense before Agrippa? Paul was a convincing man. And Agrippa stood there and it got quiet. Acts chapter 26, Paul. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. What did Paul say? Agrippa, whether in a short time or a long time, I wish that not only you, but everybody who hears my voice today would become altogether as I am except for these chains. He wanted Agrippa to make that choice. He wanted Agrippa to believe. And in presenting the gospel, friends, we must present the consequences of belief and the consequences of unbelief. And so that's what the Apostle Paul does in Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you that through Him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Here's the consequence, here's the blessing, one, the first blessing of belief. The forgiveness of sins. Now that comes for you and I like water to a thirsty tongue. That is good news. Because as Job says in Job chapter 9, how can a man be right with God? Isn't that the question that all of us ask? How is it that I can be clean who am born of a woman? How can I stand in the presence of God and be right with Him? My sin is there. And all of these Jews would have been able to, to sort of uh, sympathize with Job's words. How can a man be just? How can a man be righteous and right in the sight of God? He is holy and I am not. And I bring my animal to the temple and I watch its throat be slit for my sins. An innocent animal dies in my place. And yet, I go back and I read the law and it says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And I'm guilty and I know I'm guilty, and I stand condemned under sin. And I kill that animal for my sin, and I turn away and I find that I've sinned before I've left the temple. How can a man be just before God? We need forgiveness. This was the question that plagued Luther. In that monastery. Hours spent in the confessional. Confessing every last little sin that he could think of. And before he would get back to his room, there'd be more. And he would rush back to the confessional and the priest never wanted to see him again. It meant another hour with Luther in the confessional listening to all of these minutiae of sins and they were sick of it. How can a man be right before God, Luther said? And the Catholic Church says, well, that's easy. It's good works. It's penance. It's purchasing of papal indulgences. It's prayer to the saints. It's time spent in the confessional. It's mass. It's this. It's that. It's pilgrimages to Rome. It's giving your money to the church. And Luther would have driven himself insane if he had not been saved by the truth of Romans chapter 1. A man shall live by his faith. We are justified by grace through faith. How can I be right before God? Paul answers it. Let it be known to you this day that through Him there is forgiveness of sins. That's good news. That's the first blessing of of belief. The second one is in the rest of that verse. Verse 39. And through Him, everyone who believes is freed from all things which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Through Christ, you are freed. And that word is translated justified in the NIV, the King James, the New King James. Probably a better translation than the word freed. You are justified. That is, you are declared righteous in the sight of God from all things which you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. You are free from the law when you believe in Christ. You are justified. You are freed from it. Nobody can be saved by the law. Now, Paul comes into the synagogue and he answers the question, how can I be right with God? There's forgiveness in Christ. It's not what you did, it's what He did. He died, He buried, He was rose again. He rose again. He's triumphant. And He's paid the price for sin, so believe on Him. That's what He's appealing to them. Well, the religious leaders had an altogether different answer. What can a man do to be right before God? How can a man be just in the sight of God? And the Pharisees said, well, you need to conform yourselves outwardly to the law. Keep the law. Do what's in the law. Abide by the law. Follow the law. Keep the Big Ten, God will let you in. In today's modern uh, vernacular. You ever met people who say that? I'm going to keep the Big Ten and God will let me in. Oh, and I want to know what must I do to be saved. I don't want somebody to hand me the Ten Commandments. Here's the Ten Commandments. Keep those. Thanks. I already know I'm damned. I don't need that. I know what the law says. The law says you're damned. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. You're cursed. You'll perish. You'll be judged. And you hand me the law as a means of salvation? Paul comes with a different answer. In Christ... You are freed, you are justified from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. By the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, Romans says. Justification is that act whereby God says of Jim Osman, He's righteous. doesn't mean Jim Osmond is righteous. It doesn't mean that Jim Osmond practices righteousness. It means that in the sight of God, He is going to treat me as if I have never sinned, he is going to justify me, that is, clothe me in the righteousness of Christ and say, He is righteous in my sight. What then does God do with my sin? Well, Christ was punished for that. So He took my sin from me, but He gives me what I desperately needed and that is righteousness. So that God can look on me and He sees not me, but the righteousness of Christ which is now mine. And so He treats me as righteous. And justification is a judicial term whereby we mean he says, He's righteous. Doesn't mean I am. Doesn't mean I practice it. But it means that in the moment of my faith, God says of me, He's righteous. And I will count Him as righteous. I will reckon righteousness to His account. And I will from this moment forward treat Him as if He is completely righteous. That is the blessing of justification. How does that come? Through the law? Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. We've believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Galatians chapter 3 verse 11. No one is justified by the law before God because it is evident, for it says, the righteous man shall live by his faith. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 9, the apostle Paul said, I want a righteousness that comes not from the law, but from faith in Christ, a righteousness that is derived apart from the law. And so somebody gives you the Ten Commandments or says to you, I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm going to conform myself outwardly to the law and try and earn my righteousness that way. Now, you're deceiving yourself. If you take all of the law and boil it down, let's just, let's just make it two basic commandments. Let's take all of the law and just boil it down to not ten, but two. What would those two be? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What's number two? To love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody keep that perfectly? You boil the law down to its essence? The two greatest? And we can't keep those either. It's not a matter of keeping the ten. You see, the law could point out my sin, but it couldn't cure it. The law could highlight my need, but it could not meet it. The law pronounced me guilty. What I needed was to be pronounced righteous. What I really needed and what you really needed was somebody who could come and fulfill the law and keep the law on your behalf and thus to free you from the law and to justify you not on the law but apart from the law. You and I are justified by faith in Christ. And the law has nothing to do with that justification. It's by faith. You can't keep the big ten and hope to get in. You can't even keep the big two. And even if you could keep the big two, you still have the problem of an unregenerate nature. But you can't. So Paul says, "Let it be known to you, brethren, that through him there is forgiveness and there is freedom. In December of two thousand and one, World magazine reported on the results of a recent survey. George Barna, Christian surveyist, reported that 26% of people who claim to be born again believe that all religions are essentially the same. One in four quote-unquote Christians believe that all religions are essentially the same. And listen to this, according to the survey, 50% of people who claim to be born again believe that good works will help get you into heaven. Now let me translate that statistic for you. That means that 50% of people who claim to be born again aren't. They don't even understand that it's not our good works that get us into heaven. It's by grace. So if you're not trusting Christ and Christ alone to get you through the gates of heaven and to stand you in the presence of God, forgiven and freed and clothed in righteousness, then you must be trusting in something else. And one in two people who claim to be born again think that your good works will do something to help get you into heaven. And the Apostle Paul says... In His sight, no flesh, nobody will be justified by the law. It's by grace, through faith. You can't trust in yourself. One in two Christians think that they're going to do it and Christ will kind of help sweep them in with a broom where they're lacking. they got a little bit that needs to be sort of made up and, and He'll fill in where they're lacking, but it's mostly going to be them that does it. And that's not salvation. That's not the Gospel. Paul says, let it be known to you, that in Christ, in Christ alone, not in the law, there's forgiveness of your sins and there's freedom from everything that you could not be freed from through the law of Moses. What I really needed was somebody to come and to die, to, to, to keep the law in my place, to fulfill everything that is written in it, so that he, as the perfect law keeper, who kept it in my place, could then bear my wrath for the violation of that law. And so He not only keeps the law in my place, but He died on a cross and took the wrath of God in my place, and then He rose again to give me life. That's my substitute. And that's what Paul's presenting to them. It's through Him that you have forgiveness, and it is through Him that you have freedom. What an awesome salvation we have, is it not? It is complete and it is everything that you and I could possibly need. We needed a law keeper. God provided a law keeper. We needed a substitute. God provided a substitute. And we needed a risen Savior who could give us life, and God did that. And as the author of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Paul's point is, you won't. You won't. That's the blessings of belief. But then Paul has to lay out for him the consequences of unbelief. Look at verse 40. Therefore, here's the rest of his conclusion. Second, therefore... Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. And then he quotes from a prophet. He quotes from a minor prophet. It's Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Behold you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Now a little bit of context and background from Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 1, the prophet is wrestling with God over the issue of sin and judgment. And Habakkuk says, Lord, there's sin in the land. And Your people, they sin with impunity. And You don't do anything about it. How can Your eyes, which are pure, look on so much evil and do nothing? And the prophet is lamenting to the Lord, justice is not done. The wicked surround the righteous and justice comes out perverted. There's strife and contention everywhere. The law is not upheld. Lord, there's sin everywhere. Do something about it. And he's lamenting this and crying out to the Lord. And then the Lord says in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, Look, behold among the nations, be astonished and wonder because I'm doing something in your days that if it were described to you, you wouldn't believe it. What was the Lord talking about? Well, that's the first verse of the Lord's answer where He goes on to describe judgment's coming. It may not look like judgment is coming from your perspective, but trust me, judgment is coming. For the Lord says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans a fierce and vicious people. I'm going to bring them in and they're going to destroy your land. They're going to tear down your city. They're going to destroy your temple. They're going to wipe you, ransack you, and destroy you utterly. Judgment is coming. Now, what does that have to do with Paul's message? It's very simple. Paul's going to the Old Testament prophet, and he's saying, God in the Old Testament foretold and looked forward to and promised that those who listen to the message of truth and reject God's messenger suffer punishment. And just as Habakkuk promised the people that God was going to judge them, God judged them. And, Paul, and they would have understood exactly what Paul was saying. They would have understood Paul to be saying this. If you reject the message that I've presented to you here today, you stand in the same way that the people in Habakkuk's day stood, imminent judgment. Because God will judge the unrepentant, the unpenitent, unhumbled, prideful, sinful heart. So let it be known to you. And then Paul stops. That's the consequences of unbelief. That's the responsibility that the Apostle places upon his hearers. Here is what comes with belief. Here is what comes with unbelief. Now you choose. And then he stopped preaching. Well, look at the response of the people in verses 42 and 43. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. And now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Paul and Barnabas begin to leave, having presented to them the benefits of the blessings of belief and the consequences of unbelief. Paul stopped speaking And he gets up and gets ready to leave. And the rest of this chapter, interestingly enough, verses 42 through the end of the chapter are all about the responses of different people who heard the message. Not only this Sabbath, but also the next Sabbath. You'll look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, the whole city assembled to hear the Word of the Lord. So the rest of the chapter talks about the responses of all these different people. You're going to see some people who are indifferent. Some who were curious. Some who believed. Some who followed for a while. Some who didn't believe, and others who launched a persecution against the Apostle Paul. The rest of the chapter is all about people and their responses to this one message in Paul's Gospel. I want you to notice, let's pick it up and we're just going to read verses 44 through 52. The next Sabbath nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord, and when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. These are the unbelievers. So next week we're going to look at those who did not believe and the reasons they did not believe. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. That's the unbelievings. The unbelievers. Verse 48 begins with those who were believing, and Paul and Luke tells us about them. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now take that verse home and chew on it for a couple weeks. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And we'll get to that when we get to that. Verse 49, And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And they drove them out of their district But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You need to notice the contrast. Back and forth between those who believed and those who didn't believe and those who believed and those who didn't believe and those who believed and those who who started persecution. And back to those who believed. It's all about the responses to the Gospel. Well, there's an immediate response right after the message in verses 42 and 43. What was it? First, some of them responded with curiosity. Look at verse 42. As they were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Notice how abruptly Paul's message stops. Verse 41, he quotes from a prophet that promises damnation and judgment. Then he stops speaking. The synagogue meeting breaks up. You know what's, you notice what's absent? It's an evangelistic meeting. It's an evangelistic sermon. He's hoping for some fruit, some converts. Do you notice what's not there? Altar call. And we see the apostles do an altar call? Look, I'm not a big fan of altar calls, and this is one reason why. It's totally unbiblical. Patently unbiblical. The theology behind it is atrocious. People can come to Christ without coming forward. The Apostle Paul didn't stand up like a carnival barking banana plaid used car salesman and try and draw on everybody's emotions to get them to come forward and ask the organist to play through just as I am 15 more times while everybody makes a decision and raises their hands and then take them off in the corner and have them check a a box and sign a card and then assign them to churches in the area. Paul didn't do that. Why not? The Apostles had this silly belief that the preaching of the Word was powerful enough to save those who would look to Christ for salvation. And so they preached Christ. They laid it out in terms that everybody could understand. They appealed to those who heard to place their faith in Christ and then sit down and shut up. And God will save the sinner. That's good theology. A sound practice. No altar call. No playing on the emotions. The simple truth of the Gospel, understanding that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who will believe. Some people responded with curiosity. Paul must have hit a hit a nerve there. There's a ring of truth in what he said. Because as he was leaving, the people kept begging him, come back next Sunday. Now, Paul must have been a good preacher, a good teacher. You don't ask somebody to come back next Sunday if they're poor, if they're bad. They wanted to hear more about this. Maybe they had heard rumors of a resurrected Jesus. It's been 15 years since crucifixion and resurrection. People scattered all over the Roman Empire from the day of Pentecost, Maybe they had heard this. Maybe they had heard rumors of appearances of a resurrected Jesus. And here's one preaching this Jesus. And they would have questions. And they're hoping that Paul has some answers. And so as he's leaving, some of them are curious and they're saying to him, come back next Sabbath. We want you in again. Come back and speak these things to us again. We've got questions. We want to hear more. They're curious. These are not people who have believed. These are people who want to hear more. When you present the Gospel to people, you will run across people who are curious to hear more. And they'll be curious for all kinds of different reasons. Some people are curious in just an intellectual kind of way. They want to know more about what you believe and why. Not because they want to embrace it. Not because they want to believe like you believe. They just want to understand you better. Why do you go to church every Sunday? Tell me what it is that your church teaches. What is it that the Bible says that you believe? It's just intellectual curiosity. Other people, it's not intellectual curiosity so much as it's oppositional curiosity. They want to know what you believe so they can fight against it. Much like I might study the writings of a Jehovah's Witness so that I'm prepared when they come on my doorstep to try and lead them to Christ. I find out what they believe. I want to know what they believe. I'm curious. That's oppositional curiosity. But some people are supernaturally curious. That's because the Spirit of God is drawing them. And they sense within themselves something deep. A need. And they heard, in Paul's words, the truth. And they understand, I need that. And so they want to hear more. If you look back on how you came to faith in Christ, you'd be able to recognize how you went from an intellectual curiosity to a supernatural curiosity, where you really wanted to learn more about this Savior. The Spirit of God was drawing you. And you can never discern what kind of curiosity people are exhibiting, so you just present the Gospel to them anyway. No matter what they're curious about. Whether it's the Jehovah's Witness who's curious or the atheist who's curious or the neighbor who really, really, really learns wants to know what you believe. You present Christ. And don't be disappointed, folks. This is another thing. Don't be disappointed if all you get is a curious response. If if all you get at the end of sharing Christ is somebody who says, you know what, we can talk about that some other time. That's kind of interesting. I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit more about that. That's a good thing. That's what the Apostle Paul got. People who wanted to hear more. That's an open door. Not only were some people responding with curiosity, others responded with belief. Verse 43 When the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and the God fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking to them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. How do I know they were believers who followed Paul and Barnabas? Because Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God, implying that they had begun in the grace of God. They had believed. And so that next week, because we know they're in the synagogue on the following Sabbath, that next week, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas met with these people. These people had followed them out of the synagogue and continued with them. And so you can be rest assured there was some discipleship and some training going on as the Apostle Paul and Barnabas met with those people in that coming week. Urging them to continue in the grace of God. Now these churches, an interesting side note, the churches Iconium and Lystra and Derby and this one in Pisidia and Antioch that are all started, they're in the Galatian region the region of Galatia. Now, when Paul leaves this region and goes back home to Antioch at the end of Acts chapter 14, almost no sooner does, his, does he shake the dust off his feet and leave shore than false teachers would creep into these churches and begin teaching them that they must keep the law of Moses. Now that you're a believer, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the Sabbath. You've got to keep the feasts. And you've got to keep the law of Moses. And the false teachers would begin to teach them, Christ is a good thing but he's not enough. You need Moses as well. So interesting that before even Acts chapter 15, Paul would write the book of Galatians to these churches, and he would expound upon this one theme, that in Christ you are freed from all things that you could not be freed from in the law of Moses. He would write that book of Galatians to the churches, urging them to continue in the grace and not to return to the law as a means of righteousness. And so here are these Galatian believers And Paul begins the discipleship process like this. Continue in the grace of God. Having begun in His grace, do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage, and do not go back to your works, and to the law, and to everything that you can do as a hopes to obtaining righteousness and somehow perfecting your Christian faith. Some responded with curiosity. Some responded with belief. Now that's some good fruit from a message, isn't it? He actually got people to believe on Christ without an altar call. And they followed Him and He began the discipling process. And as that week went by, the next week they would come into the synagogue. And in that first week and that first message, He got some people who were curious and He got some people who believed the Gospel and got saved. And He had somebody to work with. Look at the fruit that John Mark missed out on. Remember when John Mark left in Acts chapter 13? Look at what he missed out on. A good message, good return on their labor, good investment, fruit, believers to work with, planting a church. Think of what Paul would have missed out on if he'd have quit when things got going rough. This is, this is where the fruit comes in. But it's not all fruit, friends, because next week it's going to really heat up. It's going to really heat up for them. And they step back into the synagogue and they may think, well, hey, we got this one wrapped up. We had people's inner curiosity peaked and we got some believers. But even in good fruit from ministry is accompanied many times with some terrible, terrible opposition. And that's what they face next week, and we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we thank You that there is encouragement there for us. And as we look at what the Gospel is and how it is that You have saved us, we just thank You that You have worked in our hearts and graced us and called us and given us the faith to believe. Thank You for making Christ to us a thing not of scorn, but a thing of beauty. Thank You for changing our hearts and our minds and opening our eyes and removing that veil that allowed us to come To Christ and we give you all of the glory for we know that it is a work of God by which we are saved and we thank you for a savior who provides for us everything we need he kept the law in our place he died in our place and he lives again to give us life thank you for a perfect substitute a perfect sacrifice and a perfect savior we give you glory today and thanks in Jesus name amen